This morning we're going to be in John chapter 11, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at the passage. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and worship you together as a family, and to remember the cross and your grace and the love that you show us every day. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us, your commitment to us as your people. I pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that you would encourage our hearts from it and remind us of just how incredible Christ is. God, we pray that you would use your spirit in our lives to make your word come alive in us and um, show us new things from this passage, show us old things from this passage, but encourage us. God, uh, build us up, build your people up this morning. And we ask these things for Christ's glory, amen. So John chapter 11 is a very familiar passage. It's the death and resurrection of Lazarus. It's probably a story most of you are very familiar with. I want to start just by reading the passage. It's going to be quite a few verses, but it'll be good. And we're not going to look at all of them, but we do need to see the background. John 11.1 Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of those people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So this is a familiar story because it's one of Christ's most famous miracles. And for good reason. Bringing someone back to life was incredibly rare even in Scripture. In all of Scripture, we have only about ten instances of someone coming back to life after being dead. One of them was Elijah. One of them was Elisha. Both situations are pretty similar. One of them's in 1 Kings 17, and the other one's in 2 Kings 4. In both situations, the guys raise the young son of a lady that they know personally. Also in 2 Kings 13, Elisha has been buried, and um, uh, they're, they're burying a man who has died in the same region. And as they're doing this, and they're in the middle of the funeral, some raiders from a neighboring company or na a neighboring country come, and they're fearful for their lives, and so they toss the man's body in Elisha's grave. And it says when his body made contact with Elisha's bones, he was resurrected. That's a really interesting one. There are two times besides Lazarus that Christ raised someone from the dead. In Luke chapter 7, he raises a widow's son. He's entering into the city of Nain, and he passes um, a, a funeral procession. And there's a young man sitting on the buyer, and the mom is weeping next to him. And Christ just touches the buyer, and the guy raises from the dead. He also raised Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8. 
So those are the only times in all of Israel's history that we see this happen, that somebody who is dead comes back to life. Two of them were done by the greatest, arguably the greatest prophets in all of Israel's history. Three of them were done by Christ himself. What's interesting about the story with Lazarus is it's very different circumstances. Every other time that a man of God has raised someone from the dead, it's always been to comfort a grieving parent. Whether it was Elijah or Elisha or the two times that Christ did it, all four instances, it was to restore a child to a parent. This one's very different. There's no parent involved in this story. It's Lazarus, and Lazarus is a full-grown man. But it's even more interesting because in all four of the other instances, the person has not been dead for long. Elijah and Elisha restored the person to life on the same day. Christ restored the lives of the other two people on the same day as well. Lazarus has been dead for a while. This is arguably the greatest miracle that Christ performed apart from his own resurrection. I want us to look at this passage really from three perspectives um, to see what we can learn this morning. I want us to look at this story from the perspective of the sisters, Mary and Martha. I want us to look at this story from the perspective of Christ. And then I want us to look at it lastly uh, from our own perspective to see what we can learn from the story, to see what we can apply from the story when we face hard days. Because this was an incredibly hard time for Mary and Martha. Not for Lazarus. Lazarus had gone to be with the Lord. He had, he had died. Lazarus is really the only one in the story who loses. All right, He's brought back to a fallen world. Everybody else, the story ends with them being better off. Not really so with Lazarus, but still an incredible miracle. So the first perspective, let's look at this story from the perspective of the sisters. But to really see this story in the scope of what's happening around Christ at this time, we really need to back up and look at a few verses from chapter 10. Look in verse 37. Christ is speaking to the Jews. And he says in verse 37, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So chapter 10 ends with Christ having to leave Jerusalem again. Once again, the leaders, the, the priests and the Pharisees are seeking his life, and he decides to withdraw for a while. This is actually the last time that he leaves Jerusalem before he returns to die. He withdraws to the place where John first started doing his ministry. Now we think that there's a really good chance that this was across the Jordan and in northern Israel. It would have been quite a bit of a distance from Jerusalem. And Bethany, the city where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, was very close to Jerusalem, only about two miles. 
So Christ is quite a bit distant from this family at the beginning of this story. What do we know about Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Not much. They, they pop up in one story in the timeline before Lazarus gets sick. And this is actually in Luke chapter 10, if you want to flip back to Luke 10 with me. This is the only other interaction that we have with Christ interacting with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And really, Lazarus, is he doesn't show up in this story. He's a, a silent witness to what takes place. Luke 10, 38 through 42. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the only story we have of them, other than John 11 and actually John chapter 12 as well. But it shows Christ in their house, eating a meal with them, teaching them. It's a very intimate setting, which really just shows us how close Christ was to this family. We actually think that Christ spent a lot of time at their house. The city of Bethany was located on the Mount of Olives, which was right outside of Jerusalem. And almost every time in the Gospels that it records the end of a day, it records Christ spending the night on the Mount of Olives. Now, he probably wasn't camping out. He was probably in the city of Bethany at the house of Mary and Martha. We think Christ may have spent most of his nights there when he was in the vicinity of Jerusalem. These are close family friends for Christ. And we, re we really see that whenever they address Christ, when they send the messenger to tell him about Lazarus. Because in John eleven three, the sisters sent to him saying simply, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They didn't have to say it was Lazarus. The great description of Lazarus was that he was the one that Christ loved. He had a special relationship with Christ, a very intimate friend. And we know he was close to Martha and Mary because he's in their home. Martha was pretty hospitable, apparently. She served him a meal here, and then in John chapter 12, they pop up again in another story, and Martha is still there serving, welcoming people into her home. So Martha had the gift of hospitality, and Mary was uniquely pure in her devotion to Christ. She had such childlike faith. She just wanted to sit at the feet of Christ and listen to him teach. The other story we have with Mary is in John chapter 12. It, it's when Mary anoints Christ. And remember, she breaks open that cask of pure nard and dumps it on Christ as a symbol of her devotion to him. And Christ actually says it was to prepare him for burial. Uh, the price of what she dumped on Christ, that fragrance, was close to a year's wage back then. 
So for Mary, she loves Christ so much. She, she just wants to be near him. She just wants to worship him. Even if it costs her a year's amount of money, she just wants to devote all of her attention to Christ. I think for Christ, this family was uniquely refreshing. You remember Christ's family wasn't devoted to him like this. Christ's brothers didn't even believe in him. Even Mary sometimes didn't, couldn't wrap her mind around why Christ was doing the things he was doing. This family was more committed to Christ's ministry than his own family was. It probably was refreshing to Christ to see three siblings serving God together, worshiping him together, associating with Christ's ministry together. This family wasn't ashamed of Christ. Multiple times the rulers have already set themselves up against him, and for Mary and Martha, even though they live so close to Jerusalem, that, they're not concerned about that. They're not concerned about what the rulers, the priests, and the Pharisees think about him. They just love Christ. And this story opens with an incredible need that they have. One of these three siblings is dying, and they seek out Jesus. Think about what it would have been like for them to be in this specific situation. You're serving Christ. You're excited about the Messiah. The one that Israel has been waiting for for centuries is finally here in your lifetime. And you get the chance to host him in your own home. He's a close friend to you. He knows you by name. And he's a close friend. Everything in your life seems to be going well. They would be so excited to get to serve Christ together. Looking forward to what the future might bring. Whatever the Messiah wants to do, the three of us are going to do it together with him. We're going to be right by his side serving him. We will be faithful. And then all of a sudden, your brother falls sick. And this isn't just a cough. This isn't just something that he's going to recover from. They realize it's serious. It would have been really easy at that very time to just question what God's doing here. You're some of Christ's greatest allies in the city where he gets the greatest persecution. You're his close friends. Why? Why would God allow Lazarus to fall sick? Lazarus is the type of man that you would assume God wants to surround Christ. Doesn't Christ want men like Lazarus to be a part of his ministry? Isn't Lazarus an asset to Christ healthy? But he falls sick. Christ didn't have many genuine believers faithful, but Lazarus was one of them. So they sent a messenger to Christ. If we can just get the message to Christ that Lazarus is ill, Christ loves Lazarus so much, he'll come. Now, you notice in their request in verse 3, they're not very specific. They don't ask for a miracle. They don't ask Christ to restore Lazarus's health. They have so much faith in Christ that they just think, if we can just get Christ here, whatever Christ brings with him is enough for us. If he just comforts us in the midst of all this, if he'll do a miracle, that's great. That's what they were hoping for. But they didn't just come out and ask for it. But it gets worse. 
not only does Lazarus fall sick, he actually dies. And all of the dreams that these three siblings had of serving the Messiah together are just gone. Instead of the excitement of being around Christ, now they have the grief of losing their brother. Why would God allow him to die? How does this fit into God's plan? The sisters did everything they could. They sent the right message to the right person at the right time, and Lazarus still died. There was nothing more that they could have done. They sent a messenger on a day's journey to find the Messiah, to tell him the right thing, to make the right request, and it didn't make a difference. At least that's the way it appeared for them. They knew Jesus did miracles for complete strangers. Think about the example I mentioned earlier. The two other times Christ had even raised someone from the dead, it was for people he didn't know. They were not his friends. We don't even know if they were believers. He healed the woman's son, and then he just went on his way. He healed Jairus' daughter, and then he went on his way. They weren't Lazaruses to Christ, and Christ still did incredible, incredible miracles for them. If he'll do it for those people, he'll do it for Lazarus. But he didn't. Now we think in the timeline, to be fair, Lazarus probably died on the same day that the messenger made it to Christ. Because we know that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. When the messenger left, he was alive. He made it to Christ. Christ waited two days and then traveled. That means it took a day's journey to get to him. He waited two days and it took a day's journey to get back. So he died on the same day that the messenger made it to Jesus. But that wouldn't help the pain that these sisters were experiencing. But believe it or not, the story actually gets worse. Not only does Lazarus get sick, not only does Lazarus die, but Christ doesn't show up. Not for a long time. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we know the story. We know that Christ waited in part because he loved them. But for the sisters, they didn't know why Christ didn't show up. The messenger arrives back on the second day. He probably traveled to Christ, gave the message the next day, traveled back to Jerusalem. He arrives. Martha and Mary, Martha and Mary probably went outside to visit with the messenger. They probably looked behind the messenger to see Christ walking down the street, and there was no Jesus. He didn't come. So they probably asked the messenger, well, was he busy doing ministry there? Was he, did he get stopped on the journey back? Was there someone that needed him? And the messenger would have had to said, no, when I left, they were na- making no preparations to come. None. Well, did Jesus give you a message? Did he give you something to tell us? No, not really. In verse 4, Christ responds to their message by saying, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I think that was a message to the disciples. The disciples were wondering if they were going to go, and Christ tells them that. But even if Christ had responded to the messenger with that, now the messenger comes back, Lazarus is dead, but the message from Christ is, this doesn't lead to death. 
That's a little bit confusing. So they send the messenger and they wait and they think, well, maybe Christ is going to follow the messenger later in the day, but he doesn't. Maybe he'll follow the messenger on the next day, but he doesn't. Even the following day, there is no Christ. He's still far away. He's still on the other side of the Jordan. He comes on the fourth day. Which, even just looking at that from the perspective of what you would expect a good family friend to do, that is very unusual and inconsiderate. Skylar's not here this morning, so I'm going to pick on him. I've known Skylar for a long time. Skylar's a close family friend of ours. If Skylar lived about eight hours away, and I sent him a message saying, Brandon has fallen sick, and it's not looking good. And he was a close family friend. Skylar had been in our house, spent the night there, ministered among us. It would be inconsiderate for Skylar to wait when there was nothing really going on, no, no pressing need for Skylar to wait four days to come. Even if he knew Brandon had passed away, to wait four days to come and bring comfort to a grieving family is incredibly unusual. And it seems very inconsiderate, at least on the surface. Christ isn't even following the normal social norms for how the Israelites interacted among themselves with close friends. So from the perspective of Mary and Martha, at the beginning of this story, it looks like all of their hopes of serving the Messiah together are gone. Lazarus has fallen sick, Andy's dead, and the one that we've put all of our hope in, the one that we believe to be the Messiah, he's not even coming. He's not even coming to minister to us, to comfort us, even in the death, of, the death of our brother. He sends no message. Where is he? Their world was crumbling around them. And Christ was unaccounted for. And like I said, we look back and we know how the story ends. Christ was very much on their side. He had great plans for them. But they didn't know that. It's very easy to sympathize with Mary and Martha in this situation. Just like them, we live in the middle of trouble, in the middle of trials, and we can't see the end of the story. And a lot of times it feels like we send the right message to the right person at the right time with all the faith we have. And Christ doesn't show up the way that we expect him to. That's why I love this story. This story is a story for us, even on our hardest days, to see what Christ is doing when he's not visible to us. For us, a lot of times it doesn't end with a resurrection. For these sisters, everything ended great. God had perfectly restored the, the situation. But for us, at the end of the day, it still seems like the problems are there, the trouble's there, the trials are there, the consequences are there. Sometimes they don't go away, sometimes they just get worse. And God doesn't bend the laws of nature, work a miracle, and make everything okay. So that would have been the perspective of the sisters at the beginning of this story. 
it would have been a very hard test for their faith. I think the hardest test in the New Testament. When I think of the Old Testament of the hardest test, I think of Abraham being told to offer up Isaac, his very own son, the promised son. And for Abraham, it was a test of obedience. For these sisters, it was a test of patience and a test of faith. Would Christ be faithful even on their darkest day? But not only is the perspective of the sisters important for us to understand this story, the perspective of Christ is important as well. See, because for Jesus, he wasn't just traveling to the sisters' home. Like I mentioned earlier, when he traveled to Jerusalem, he never left again. Christ was moving towards the cross when he was moving towards Lazarus. He knew when he left and headed back towards Judea, it would start a series of events that culminated in the cross. The resurrection of Lazarus was the beginning of the end for Christ's earthly ministry. A few things happened. At the end of chapter 11, we didn't read these verses, but in verses 44 or uh, 45 through 55, the Pharisees and the priests hear of the resurrection of Lazarus and they unite to destroy Christ, more committed than ever to bringing about his end. That was one result of the resurrection of Lazarus, the unity of his enemies. But not only that, in chapter 12, a direct result of the death and resurrection of Lazarus is Mary's gesture of worship that I mentioned earlier. When she broke open the nard and anointed Christ and bathed his feet with her hair, she did that as a, 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 as a worship, worship to him. But not only was it, um, did it culminate in Mary's generosity, it also culminated in Judas's greed. Because we read in chapter 12, Judas say, why was this not distributed to the poor? Why did we waste all of this? And that was actually the final straw for, Ju for Judas. The resurrection of Lazarus, the generosity of Mary, led to Judas's ultimate betrayal. It was that act of worship that caused Judas to betray Christ. And it was directly related to the resurrection of Lazarus. It was such a powerful miracle that it united his enemies and it distanced the one disciple that really wasn't committed. And Christ knew all of this going into it. Christ knew that raising Lazarus would result in his death. And make no mistake, Christ wanted to go to the cross, but Christ dreaded going to the cross all the same. To have to face the wrath of God, to have to be separated from God like he had never experienced, was an overwhelming burden on the mind of Christ. Just a few days after John chapter 11, Christ looks up to the heavens and says, Now is my soul troubled. My soul is troubled with what's coming down the road. And in the garden, he said, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Christ was carrying that burden even as he walked towards Bethany to raise Lazarus. This was a defining moment in the ministry of Christ. 
from John chapter 11 and on, Christ really doesn't minister to the crowds in public. He devotes most of his time to the disciples because he knows my earthly ministry is ending. And what's interesting to me is in John chapter 12, when we see Mary anoint Christ for burial, she, out of all of the people around Christ, understood or seemed to understand that she was going to be losing him. It wasn't just an act of worship. It was an act of worship anointing him for burial. Mary was the one person who could wrap her mind around the fact that Christ wasn't going to be there much longer. So we have the perspective of the sisters, and it is a hard, hard trial in their life. And some of the things that they would have assumed Christ would have done, he hasn't done. He hasn't shown up in the way they would have expected. And they've lost their brother. And we see Christ's perspective that he knows he's walking towards the cross when he heads to, to resurrect Lazarus. But the most important thing for us to see this morning, I think, is what does this story mean for us? What does this mean for believers? Because like I said, a lot of times our hardest days don't end with a resurrection. The miracle doesn't come. Now I think that um, the reality the reality is that problems are all around us. The reality is that we don't always see God move miraculously. So the question that we have to ask is, how do we as believers find peace when the miracle never comes? There's nothing wrong with praying for the miracle. There's nothing wrong with asking God to do an incredible unseen work in our lives because sometimes he does that. But what about the days when he doesn't move heaven and earth to fix the problem? How do we find peace when the miracle never comes? So I want to just point out four things from this story real quick about what we see in the nature of Christ that can comfort us. Because on our darkest days, we don't run to anything except Christ. Who Christ is, is our greatest comfort as believers. What does this story tell us about Christ? What if Lazarus stayed dead? The first thing I think we see in verses 5 through 6. So look in verses 5 through 6 with me. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What's so fascinating to me about those verses is it says he loved them, so he waited even longer. How does that make sense? Christ loved Mary and Martha, so he hit the road immediately. That's what I would have expected to read. He immediately started traveling to Bethany because they needed him. Not the case. He waited even longer because of how much he loved Mary and Martha. This reminds me, this is the first thing I, th I think we see about the character of Christ. It reminds us that all of Christ's decisions are determined by his love for us. Even when it looks like Christ is doing something that we wouldn't expect, we can trust that he's doing that because of how much he loves us. Now I think in the case of Mary and Martha, 
it was simple. Their immediate relief wasn't good for them in this situation. I'm sure they thought their immediate relief was good. If Christ could show up the same day, that would have been awesome from their perspective. But Christ had a bigger goal in mind. Their immediate relief wasn't what was important. It wasn't good for them. And Christ only wanted to do what was good for Mary and Martha because of how much he loved them. Christ wanted their faith to grow as they had to wait on Christ. And he wanted his power to be more evident after he raised Lazarus from the grave. So I'll just remind you this morning, your circumstances are not... Let me rephrase this. Your circumstances don't affect Christ's love for you. And it's really tempting to see hard times in our lives and to think, does he love me less than he did last year? Why is he doing this? Why is he letting this come about in my life? Because for the believer, we have to look at all of our circumstances under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Everything that comes into your life has to pass through the sovereignty of God to get there. Everything that's in your life, every single circumstance, God knows, and it's actually in God's plan for you. Even the really hard ones. Even the ones that don't make sense. And I'll just remind you, if you're a believer, God's allowing that into your life because he loves you. He may not be answering your prayers the way that you expect, but it's because he loves you. Christ loved Mary and Martha more than they could understand. The great passage in Scripture about this, I think, is Romans 8. So I'm going to read verses 35 through 39. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You talk about some tribulation or distress. Losing your brother is tribulation or distress. But not only did it not separate them from the love of Christ, we actually see the story unfold and it revealed that all of that happened to prove to them how much Christ loved them. Christ's love for you determines every single action he takes towards you if you're a believer. That's a great comfort. Let's look at the second one. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The second comfort we find in this passage is simply that Christ will always be glorified. Always. God was glorified and the Son was glorified. Both the Father and the Son received glory on this hard day. God can even use the death of a saint to bring himself glory. God can use the doubt of these two sisters 
to bring himself glory when he reveals his power to them. Now, I'll be honest with you. For a lost person, this doesn't bring any comfort. The lost person doesn't care about God's glory. They care about their own perspective. But for the believer, this is a great source of comfort because it reminds us of just how big our God is, just how in control he is. I'll remind you this morning, God's glory is always God's chief concern. It is always his end game, his number one priority, and it should be our greatest desire as well. When we see Christ say, this will end with the glory of God, it's a comfort to us that God can always use every situation to bring him glory. Even the ones that don't make sense to us, the hard situations. If God's still getting glory, his plan hasn't fallen apart. Everything is still moving forward. Even my heartache can bring God glory. If Christ can get glory from the worst situations, maybe the situation isn't as bleak as we actually thought it was. Because God's still in control. And if God can accomplish his greatest purpose to bring himself glory, he can accomplish all of his purposes. The third thing we see from this is in verses 33 through 38. The source of comfort is that Christ understands our sorrows and he cares. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Three times in those verses we just read, we see Christ's emotion show. I'll just remind you, Christ is not distant from us emotionally. He can't. He does understand. He does understand what we're going through. Now, I will say, this phrase that he was deeply moved, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was, like, just really sad. A lot of times, this phrase, deeply moved, means upset, as in angered. I think this whole situation was incredibly frustrating to Christ, incredibly upsetting. But it does also say that he wept. Now, that is sorrow. But he was deeply moved and upset. Why? I think for a lot of reasons. Usually it, it has to do with indignation. I think Christ looked at this scenario and he saw the lack of faith in some of the people there. And he saw the hypocrisy of the Jews that had come from, from Jerusalem to, to be there and publicly mourn his death. He saw the lack of hope in Mary and Martha. And he saw unbelief all around him. And it upset him. I think he was also upset because even a faithful man like Lazarus was still under the curse of sin. Even faithful men like Lazarus still die. 
still face sickness. It was a visual reminder to Christ of just how broken the world is. And so he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he still wept. It still broke his heart. There's a temptation for the believer to face trials and to think God and Jesus Christ, the Son, in all of their glory, in all of the splendor of heaven, do they really know what it's like for me? Can they really sympathize with what I'm going through right now? Does Christ understand? Does he see? Or am I lost as he looks at all of the millions of believers around the world? And I'll remind you, Christ sees every individual believer. He knows every trouble that we face. He saw immediately into the heart of Mary and Martha. And he does experience sorrow over the brokenness of the world. Christ is the great high priest in Hebrews who sympathizes with us. And I think a great verse to go to on our darkest days is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. It proves he's not detached and he's not uninterested. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let me remind you this morning, Christ cares for you more than you'll ever know. He cared for you so much that he went to the cross for you. If he's willing to go for the, to the cross for you, he cares for you so much. What I love about 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 is it doesn't say cast your long-term anxieties on him, the ones you haven't been able to shake for five years. It doesn't say cast your major anxieties. It doesn't even say cast your spiritual anxieties. It says cast all of your anxieties. God cares for me so much that my most insignificant, irrational anxiety is still worthy of Christ's shoulders. On our darkest days, when we don't get the miracle that we pray for, we can trust in Christ's love for us, but we can also trust that he cares deeply about the problem itself. He wants all of our anxieties, and that's because he understands and he sympathizes with us. The fourth and last one is that Christ can bring good from any situation any situation. It's never too late for him to still work. And we see this because of how long Christ waited. Christ waited for two days before he headed down to Bethany. And it was so that, I'm going to try and say this delicately, it was so that Lazarus could start going bad in the tomb. God wanted to wait to raise Lazarus after Lazarus had already started decomposing. We see this in a couple places in the story. When Christ says, roll back the stone, one of the sisters says, Lord, there's, there's going to be an odor. He's been in there for so long that his body has started to decompose. I wouldn't recommend going around anything that's been dead for four days and then has sat in the desert. Lazarus was 
way, way gone. Every other time that someone's raised in the Bible, it's immediate. Peter raised Dorcas in the book of Acts. It happened on the same day. Paul raised the young man who fell out of the window. It happened on the same day. Elisha and Elijah, the same day, but not Christ. Christ is so powerful that if he chooses to let Lazarus sit in the tomb for three weeks, he can still bring him back to life. You see just how impossible this situation was, just how impossible this miracle was when Christ visits with Martha in this passage. Look in... Look in the second section of this passage, starting in verse 20. It says, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. He told her what the plan was. And Martha said to him in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She didn't even consider an immediate resurrection a possibility. Christ said to her point blank, your brother will rise again. And for Martha, she was thinking, he must mean at the end of times. Because there's no way that Christ is going to raise him immediately after he sat in the tomb for four days. Christ didn't just restore the spirit of Lazarus to the body. Lazarus's body was so far decomposed by this point because the Jews did not embalm that he had to recreate the body of Lazarus for Lazarus to be able to walk out of that tomb. That's what makes this the most incredible miracle Christ ever did apart from raising himself from the dead. Everyone would have looked at this situation and said, it's too late. Christ can do a lot, but Christ won't raise Lazarus from the dead because Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And Christ is thinking, that's not a problem. Not for me. Christ could do it, even though it was so far from his death. But not only was the time an obstacle, death itself was an obstacle. This was an exceedingly rare miracle for Christ to work, for anyone to be raised from the dead, even immediately, was such a powerful thing. It implies power over death, which is power over the curse of sin. It implies power over eternity, because God can bring back Lazarus into our world. Power over time, power, power, power. This miracle revealed Christ's power. But not only does he have power over time and over death, he actually reveals his power even over the government of Israel. Remember, they wanted to kill Christ. And Christ just marches back into Bethany as if he owns the place, because he does own the place. And all of the rulers in Israel can't stop him. The disciples are reluctant. Remember, Thomas says, let's go with him so that we can die with him. All right? Which we got to give Thomas a little bit of, a little bit more credit than he deserves. All right, Thomas was right. They did kill Christ. He wasn't just being pessimistic. He was being realistic. Thomas said, "Let's go back, so we'll die with him." And just a few days later, they did kill Christ, and they wanted to kill the disciples, but Christ kept them from doing it. 
death, time, the government. Some of those are the most powerful forces that we see at work, and they were weak obstacles to Christ accomplishing his purpose. Nothing could stop him from doing what he wanted to do. Nothing could stop him from doing this miracle. So you may not get the miracle that you ask God for, but you do get the all-powerful, all-sovereign Christ who can do whatever he wants. It's never too late for him to make good out of a bad situation. And I'll, remember, I'll remind you guys, Romans 8.28 says that God works all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. So even in the situations where we don't see any good, for the believer, God promises to work good. It may not be until you get to heaven that you see the good that God has wrought, but he will bring good about. Oftentimes, he brings good in ways that we don't expect, that we couldn't have even asked for. But it's never too late for him. If ever there was a time when it was too late for Christ to work, it was this situation. But nothing stopped him. Nothing stopped Christ. Every obstacle in the path of Christ is insignificant. It's an incredible thing when we remember just how powerful Christ is. And of all these things that we see about him, his power should be one of our, our greatest comforts. So those four things, I think those four truths are very important for Christians to remember. We have to remember that Christ's decisions are always brought about by his love for us. We have to remember that Christ will always get the glory. We have to remember that Christ understands and he cares. And we also have to remember that Christ can always bring good from the bad, always. And for, for the believer, he actually promises to. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the fact of the matter is that Christ's love does not rest on you the way that it does for believers. But it doesn't have to stay that way. You need the one who could raise Lazarus from the dead to raise you from the dead. Because the fact of the matter is that our sin has made us just as dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically. And Christ can come to our tomb and he can breathe his spirit into our lives and make us a new creation just like he made Lazarus a new creation. You need that. You need it for the troubled days in your life, but you also need it for eternity. No one can face death without Christ and still win. Only Christ has that victory. Only he's powerful enough to work that miracle inside of you. But for you who are believers, I'll just tell you, even when you don't get the miracle that you hope for, Christ has by no means turned his back on you. These truths are true every day for the believer because these truths are related to the character and nature of Christ. I want to read one passage in closing, and then Larry will come and lead us in worship one last time. It's a great passage that reminds us that Christ did for us spiritually what he did for Lazarus physically. It's Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, and it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Our spiritual rebirth is as much our workings as it was for Lazarus to come back from the dead. We have to rely on Christ completely, just like Lazarus had to rely on Christ completely. Let me pray for us, and then we'll worship God again in song. God, thank you for this story. Thank you that we can see how it ends, even though it was so hard for Mary and Martha, and they didn't know how you were working. We see your faithfulness throughout the entire story. We see your plan coming about exactly how you planned it to. Nothing could stop you from accomplishing your purpose, and nothing can stop you from accomplishing your purposes in our lives. I pray that we would have faith on our darkest days, that we would rest in these four things. We would rest in your love for us. We would rest in your commitment to get glory. We would rest in your ability to always turn bad situations to the good no matter how far the situation was gone. And we would also remember that you understand and care always. You care about our smallest anxieties, our smallest trials. You are our great ally. Thank you for your commitment to us. None of us deserve this. None of us deserve a Christ that's this committed to us, a Messiah that's this compassionate and loving. Thank you so much for revealing yourself to us in that way. Amen.